If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I think I went too hard on that first hymn, and I might... (laughs) My voice is feeling funny. Couldn't help it. I could have turned around and sang it all over again. We're going to begin in the second half of verse 1 and read to the end of the chapter. And as we read this passage, you'll notice a shift in the narrative. Thus far, the focus of the book has been on Samuel, on his barren mother who conceives, on Samuel being given to serve the Lord in the tabernacle in Shiloh, and then his call by the Lord in the wee hours of the morning. That's that's all we've seen so far. But there's no Samuel today. Actually, there's going to be no Samuel for the next three chapters, 4, 5, and 6. And in his absence, some loose ends are going to be tied up. We'll see that in just a moment. But something else is going to come to the forefront. Do you know what it is? It's mentioned 12 times in chapter 4. It's the Ark of God. The Ark of the Covenant. And I want to spend some time here because the Ark is going to be in the spotlight for these next three chapters. If you were with us a few years ago, maybe you remember when we made it to Exodus 25 and we spoke about the Ark. I want to remind you of some some details concerning the Ark. It was a rectangular wooden box about the size of a blanket chest that you may have in your home. It was covered inside and out with sheets of pure gold. On its sides were four feet that kept it from sitting directly on the ground. Attached to those feet were golden rings. And through those rings ran two golden poles that were parallel on either side of the ark, which made it portable. The priests could hold these poles without touching the ark itself, and they could carry it on their shoulders as the people of Israel would move from one place to another. While not on the move, the ark was placed in the center of an inner room of the tabernacle and later the temple called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And it was kept there because it served as ground zero For the presence of God. It was the exact place where God would descend to dwell with his people. And for this reason, the Ark of the Covenant was treated with great reverence and care. Remember what was kept inside? This golden box. There was Aaron's rod, which you can read of in number 17. There was a bowl of manna. The food that the Lord provided for His people when they were wandering in the wilderness. And there were two copies of the Ten Commandments. Now you might say, two copies. Well, I want to remind you. I talked about this back in Exodus 25. I want to come back to it today. I think think it's important. Our common conception of these tablets is that you'll see this in in artwork. You'll, You'll see this in 
Sunday school curriculum, what's commonly seen is on tablet number one, you have the first four commandments, which are aimed at our love of God. And on the second tablet, you have the latter six commandments, which are aimed at our love of neighbor. Right? That's how it's commonly seen. But I don't believe this was the case. The Ten Commandments were written on both tablets. Both were identical. They were photocopies of one another. And the reason is that in the ancient world, when a covenant was made, the terms and conditions would be written down. Both parties would get a copy. This is is easy for us to grasp. If a king made a covenant with a neighboring nation, one copy of that Contract would remain in the king's custody. The other copy would go to the people of that neighboring nation. If either party broke faith, if either party broke the covenant, the other could cite their contract, hold it in their hand, and say, we had an agreement. It's written down right here. You have not kept your end of this agreement, and so we will hold you accountable. That's exactly what we have in the two tablets of stone. God makes a covenant with his people. The terms and conditions are written down. God has a copy and Israel has a copy. And the fact that they are kept together inside the ark is for the simple reason that God is dwelling with his people. He doesn't take his copy of the contract and leave and go somewhere else. He remains with them, which is why we have both stone tablets, the testimony of the covenant, kept in the ark. Well, that's what's kept inside the ark, but what about what's on top? The top of the ark, if we could see it, is where your eyes would first be drawn. The top was this lid, this cover that had two golden figures, two angelic creatures named as cherubim. They were facing one another with their wings outstretched, shading the ark. These golden images were of the supernatural beings that continuously live in the presence of God, who attend to His throne, and who deny access to anything or anyone That is unholy. But there's no image of the Lord. There's no image of Him. That would be a great evil. It would be a violation of the second commandment. So there was only the cherubim. And rather the space above the ark was left open. So what about the surface underneath the wings of the cherubim? The actual lid. Well, it was called the mercy seat. If you remember, seat here does not refer to chair or a place where you sit. It refers to a location. For example, Corinth is the county seat of Alcorn County. Seat refers to location. And because this lid is called the mercy seat, it tells us where mercy was to be found. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place... And he would offer a sacrifice 
for the people of Israel. And after making that sacrifice, he would take some of the blood and he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat, onto the top of the ark. And this beautiful golden lid under the cherubim would be sprinkled with blood. And the Lord would see this blood on the mercy seat and would forgive the sins of his people. Atonement was made. They were protected from the just judgment of God due their sin. And again, before I go on, just just think of the location of the mercy seat, right? Think about what it's portraying. Above you have the cherubim, above you have God Almighty, and below are the demands of the law, the commandments of the King of Heaven. And there in the middle is the mercy seat. God was above, enthroned in majesty. His people are below, breaking His law, proving unfaithful to the covenant. But in between, there was blood that covered Israel's sin. Blood that took away His wrath. In the middle was the location of mercy and the forgiveness of sins. Now, as I said previously, I wanted to remind you of these details so that you can have a picture in your mind of the ark as we read of it in these next three chapters. But especially with today's passage, I wanted to spend some time on the ark because I want you to better understand the utter horror and devastation of what's going to be expressed after the ark is captured. It will be taken by an enemy army. And we'll see that in just a moment. But first, let's pray before we read God's word together. Almighty God, we do confess that this is your word. It was written by men of God who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. It is unchanging. It is truth. And God, I plead this morning as your humble servant that as we read this text together and as I preach it, that you would send your spirit to work through the hearts of your people. Do not depart from us, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit to work through the reading and preaching of your holy word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read our text beginning in 1 Samuel 4, verse 1b. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his own home. And there was a very great slaughter. Some 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. With his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching For his heart trembled before the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell back over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now the daughter-in-law of the wife of Phinehas was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. 
for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. And she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So our text begins with a battle between Israel and the Philistines. This was not their first conflict. I believe the first conflict goes back to Judges 3 in the days when, when uh, Deborah was judging the people. That, I think that was their first interaction. And this isn't going to be their last. Because as you remember, a young man named David will go out with nothing but a sling and stones and he kills a giant Philistine champion. So this is not the first or the last, but in this battle, Israel is the loser. And it cost them 4,000 men dead on the battlefield. And it isn't, isn't it interesting what the elders of Israel say? They say in verse 3, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They don't say, why have the Philistines defeated us? They say, why has the Lord defeated us? And they'd be right. And here's, here's an important question. Knowing that, that the Lord had defeated them before the Philistines, what should they have done next? Well, it should have been clear. Again, this is the very end of the time of the judges. There was a clear cycle that happened over and over again during the time of the judges. Number one, Israel would forget the Lord and fall into unbelief and sin. Number two, God would hand them over to their enemies. Number three, Israel would cry out to God and repent. And number four, God would send a leader to deliver them. That happens over and over and over again. They would fall into sin. God would hand them over to their enemies. Israel would cry out and repent. And the Lord would send a deliverer. They knew this. They should have said, well, uh, that didn't go well. We've obviously fallen into sin. That's why the Lord was against us. That's why we lost this battle. So why don't we seek the Lord and repent of our sin? That's what they should have done. Sought the Lord, go to Eli the high priest, go to Samuel, this new prophet who's speaking the words of the Lord, ask that their sin be named, lament over that sin, make sacrifices, and then cry out for mercy and commit to walk with the Lord in the future. That's what they should have done. But they don't do any of that. What do they do instead? They say, aha, The ark, the ark, that's what we need. Let's bring it from the tabernacle in Shiloh and carry it into battle so that it 
may save us from our enemies. And I hope it's clear what they're thinking. Oh, this sacred, beautiful golden chest, it will save us, not the God who gave the instructions and dimensions for building it. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Their assumption is to have God's furniture, is to have God's power. The ark was their religious ace in the hole. So they want to pull it out. You know, in preparation for this sermon, guess what movie I watched? Raiders, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. By the way, parents like... The movie started and it says like 1981, that's when it was made. And then it says PG and I'm like, oh, it's a PG movie. A PG movie in 1981? Goodness gracious. Like there, was, there are times I'd look at Molly and I'd say, this is a PG movie? So just parents, beware. It's, uh, it is, uh, there's, there's some serious violence in, in that movie. Um, but if you remember the storyline from the movie... Adolf Hitler is collecting religious artifacts and and the U.S. government receives intelligence that the Germans are doing this and that the Germans are doing a major archaeological dig in Egypt. And so these government officials go and visit Indiana Jones and his friend Marcus Brody at some university. And they ask, What would the Nazis want with an artifact in Egypt? And the archaeologists give the answer. And this is not not historical, by the way. This is just the writers came up with this. They say, well, it's rumored that the Egyptian pharaoh captured the ark and brought it back to Egypt. And the government officials look at them and say, well, why why would Hitler want it? How would having the ark... Help the Germans. And then you probably remember this line. Marcus Brody, Indiana Jones' friend, looks at these government officials and says, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. That's why he's after it. Now, if that's true. Now, obviously, Marcus Brody had never read 1 Samuel 4. Hitler had never read 1 Samuel 4 if he, if, if, in the storyline. But those words, Brody's words, describe exactly what the elders of Israel are thinking. Let's go get the ark and bring it with us and challenge the Philistines to a rematch. Because if we have it, we can't lose. Our army with the ark will be invincible. And while we're tossing around good ideas, let's bring those godly, well-respected men of the cloth, sons of Eli. They can supervise its transport. That's exactly what they do. And what happens? Well, everything starts off well. Morale is at an all-time high. It skyrockets. The Israelite soldiers are shouting with confidence. The Philistines are trembling with fear. They'd heard some stories of the Exodus, but you notice in those details that the Philistines are speaking, they they get some of the details wrong. 
But what ends up happening? Well, there is another battle. Israel is defeated. 30,000 men were killed. All who survive fled. And the ark was captured and taken by the Philistines. And by the way, the two wicked sons of Eli that we've heard so much about over the past couple chapters, they died as well. Just on Hophni and Phinehas, we're reminded that God always keeps his word. He'd spoken in the previous chapters, saying that these sons of Eli, who were doing all that they were doing, they would both die on the same day. And here is the fulfillment of that word. But there's something else I want us to think about. What the people are doing, what the elders of Israel are doing, is at its root, coercive. You see what they're doing? Well, God wouldn't let the ark fall into the hands of his enemies. So if we take it with us, he must give us victory in battle. You know, we see something similar in Jeremiah 7. But, but in, in 1 Samuel 4, it is, it is an offensive fight. In Jeremiah 7, it is defensive. The, the people are behind the walls of Jerusalem The armies of Babylon are threatening them. And do you remember what they said safely behind the walls? They said, the temple, the temple. We've got the temple with us. We are safe because God would never allow the temple to be destroyed and looted. As long as the temple is here, we're safe. Same thing was thought with the ark. And in both cases, they're trusting in an object. And not the one who set the object apart and made it holy. Now we need to beware because this is a natural human response. Thinking that we can take hold of a religious object and it will protect us. Thinking we can perform a religious action. And that in doing so God must give us what we want. I mean, we can, like, the examples of this are, right, you can't name them all. I mean, there's so many. I, I, I'm not against prayer vigils. But, but we need to think about our motives. Are you having a 24-hour prayer vigil and fasting, saying, I will not stop praying, and I will fast until God gives me what I want. Be careful of your motives. Maybe we can think, well, you know, I went to worship this morning, so me and God are good. I did my part, and now He is obligated to give me a blessed week. Or think of things like, I don't know, there are some folks who will Hang a cross on the wall of their home and believe that cross is protecting their home. It's like it puts a barrier of protection over them. And that's what they're trusting in. Or maybe it's a young lady or a young man who says, I'm going to keep myself pure 
and I'm going to save myself for my spouse. And if I do that, God will give me a happy and fruitful marriage. So many examples of this. You are trying to control God. It's this false belief. If I do blank, then God will be forced to do what I want. And it's clear in 1 Samuel 4, God responds by saying, you cannot control me. You cannot twist my arm. I'm not your lucky rabbit's foot. And I will suffer shame and loss. I will allow the Ark of the Covenant to fall into the hands of the Philistines before I submit to your self-centered coercion. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Whenever the church stops confessing you are worthy and begins chanting you are useful, well then you know that the ark of God has been captured again. We'd be wise to learn from this disaster. It has been proven that an army in possession of the ark is not in fact, invincible. So rather, we should seek after three things. First, to know God. I talked about this earlier in my prayer, to know His character and His Word and how we have sinned against Him and to know the means by which we can be reconciled and forgiven. That's first. Second, to grow in holiness. Instead of attempting to control God, we should seek to become more like Him. And third, we should seek to serve Him and His kingdom and not have Him serve us and our own self-interests. But none of that happens here. There's no seeking to know the Lord and His character and His will. There's no seeking to grow in holiness, there's no repentance, uh, there's no submitting to him and serving his interests, and so he allows the ark to be captured by the Philistines. So we need to get to the second half of this chapter and look at the fallout. This is a national disaster. A runner is sent from the battle to bring news to the people, and first we see there's the general outcry of horror by those in the city. Now, some of you are old enough to remember when those planes ran into the World Trade Center and when those towers fell. Some of you are old enough to remember the Challenger explosion. Some of you are old enough to, I don't know whether you saw it on TV or on the radio, hearing of President Kennedy after he was assassinated. Might be a few of you in here. You know, those were all days when the people of this nation were shocked and left speechless. And I want you to think of those events and then crank up the intensity because here in one day, 30,000 are dead. The army is scattered. 
the religious leaders are slain. The Ark of the Covenant, which contained the mercy seat and the Ten Commandments, the object where God would condescend and pardon the sins of His people, it was captured by an enemy army. And all those Israelites who are less theologically astute would now believe that the Philistines controlled the power of God. Could you imagine them them thinking, now our enemies have the super weapon. It's hard for us to identify with news that devastating. I mean, you can make a case that for the nation of Israel, this is their lowest point since they've been slaves in Egypt. So the city hears this. They cry out in horror. And then there's Eli. He's now 98 years old. He's blind. We're told that he is heavy. He's obese, probably from eating all those meals that his his sons had stolen from the worshipers in the tabernacle and stolen the, the choice pieces of meat that were supposed to be offered to the Lord. And he's thinking about, of course, the prophecy of his family line ending, and now both of his sons have gone off to battle. We're told that he's trembling for the ark because he knew the ark was only supposed to be moved and go into battle at the Lord's command, and he had not said a thing. In his heart, Eli seems to know that all has gone wrong. And so he's sitting there by the road, waiting to hear something, and he hears the cries of horror and dismay coming from the city, and so he cries out, What is this? What is this uproar? What's happening? What's wrong? And then the messenger comes and says to Eli, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been a great defeat. Your two sons also are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. We read that this news literally kills him. He hears that the ark has been captured. He falls backwards out of his seat, breaks his neck, and dies. Now again, we asked earlier in our time of confession, how did Eli get here? How did he end up, the high priest, end up in this sad state? I think he ended up here little by little. One compromise after another. I mean, just think of the difference it would have made if Eli had spent more time seeking after the Lord in his word and in prayer. Think of the difference if he had honored the Lord above his sons. If he protected the worship of God in the holy place. But sin and temptation can be so deceptive. They can be so alluring and false and promise us happiness and satisfaction. But this sad scene is a graphic picture of where sin ultimately ends. We must be warned and take our sin deadly serious. But there's one more reaction that we see in this text. And it's from the daughter-in-law of Eli. 
This is the wife of Phineas. She's in the latter stage of her pregnancy. And when she hears the news about the ark, she is so upset she goes into labor. And although her newborn son will live, she will not. She'll die in childbirth, leaving this son as an orphan with no mother, no father, no grandfather. But the very last thing she does before she dies is give this son a name. She names him Ichabod. The name Ichabod could mean no glory or where is the glory? And she helps us here with the name because she goes on to explain, call him Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now, were her words true? For the time being, yes. God had temporarily departed from them. Shiloh would be destroyed. The Philistines would be in power for the next 20 years. The high priest was dead. His sons were dead. The mercy seat was taken. The glory of God had departed from Israel. And I want you to see that this isn't the only place in Scripture where this happens where the glory of God departs. There's an even more significant moment later. I mentioned it earlier. Where it's not the ark, but it is the spirit of God that Ezekiel sees leaving the temple. He sees Jerusalem and everyone's inside. They're trusting in the temple. The temple will keep them safe from the Babylonians. And the spirit of God leaves. And Jerusalem and that temple will be destroyed in the year 586 B.C. It's as if the name Ichabod is written over the temple. The glory has departed from Israel. I mentioned earlier, you think of the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. These churches are tolerating false teaching, heresy. They're tolerating sexual immorality. And the Lord threatens them saying, I will remove your lampstand from its place if you do not repent. My glory will depart. My spirit will depart from your churches if you continue to tolerate immorality and false teaching. I will write Ichabod over the names of your churches. I mean, you think of churches today. Churches that tolerate sin. Churches where the glory of God and the Spirit of God departed years ago. Buildings where you could rightly put the name Ichabod over their doors or write it across the east wall behind the pulpit. People of Trinity, elders of Trinity, God help us. May it never be fitting of this congregation that the name Ichabod be written on this sign out on Harper Road. 
So what then are we to do? Well, we find the answer in God's word, and that is to, again, seek the Lord. In Zechariah 1.3, we read, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Jeremiah 29. Then you will call upon and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore the fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. That's the answer. If if you feel the Lord is distant, if the peace and joy that the Lord gives seems far or diminished, seek Him. Seek to know Him. Seek His holiness. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. He has promised He will return and you will find Him. But we aren't just finished yet. I need to ask you, where is the greatest instance where we see the glory of God departing? Isn't it on the cross? The name Ichabod could have been written on the cross. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among His people. He is the greater ark. He is the greater temple. And in him we see, we behold the glory of the Father. But he was despised by men. And the sky turned black. And the Lord Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Lord of glory dies. His dead body hung on the cross. And his spirit departed from the earth. This was a darker time for Israel than any that came before or any that would come after. The Lord of glory departing. Now on that note, maybe some of you have looked ahead at your bulletins. And you've noticed that we're about to sing joy to the world. And maybe you're thinking, John, how in the world... Do you plan on getting from there to here, or from where we currently are to that hymn? How do we get from this time of national disaster to singing joy to the world? It's by remembering that there was another name given to the Lord Jesus. At the end of 1 Samuel 4, you have a A mother call her newborn son Ichabod. But it's foretold that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know that the Lord Jesus would depart for a time. He would 
remain in the grave for three days. But by the power of the Father, the Lord of glory would be resurrected. And he would come back to his disciples and say, My spirit will come upon you and fill you. And you will receive power. I am with you always to the end of the age. And I was reminded of this messianic prophecy we just read in Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The Lord Jesus would then return to his Father, where he remains today. But one day, someday, he will return, and his glory will fill the earth as waters fill the sea. And he will come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What then is your duty and calling? I'm almost done. I'm on the runway. To be messengers of this good news. That's your duty. Not to be downcast and woe is me like the man of Benjamin who came to Shiloh. We are those who bring good news. You know, with, with messengers, it was often said that the people of the city knew the news before they even got there. The people could look out and see how the messenger was running. What was his appearance? What was his posture? And they could look and know whether the news was good or ill. And how's the messenger that comes to Shiloh? Well, his face is covered in dirt. His clothes are torn. That's not a good sign. But how will you appear to the world? Will the world look at you and see your hope and joy and uplifted head and conclude, man, this person is one who brings good news. This person is one who is convinced of the hymn we are about to sing together. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. May such words be said of us. God help us. Let's pray together. Father God, as we sang this morning during our time of confession, we plead that you would abide with us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. In you is life and light and truth and all goodness. Father, would we be kept near to you? Would you not take your Holy Spirit from us? And so, Father, when We as your children are chastised. Would we be quick to recognize it as a grace from you? Would we be quick to run to you and to confess our sin and to plead the merit of the blood of Jesus on our behalf? 
And would we pursue a new obedience and life of holiness? And Father, would we be those messengers? Would we be those messengers of hope? With head uplifted, with smiles on our faces, knowing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our sin has been dealt with, and that he is alive forevermore and will never leave or abandon his church. And that one day, all things will be made new and his glory will fill the earth as water fills the sea. We ask all this in his name. Amen.